Well, in our men's time this fall, we have been studying the book of Daniel, and it has been exciting. Uh, we've looked at, so far, the first four chapters of Daniel. We've been introduced to Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, we've been introduced to King Nebuchadnezzar, who reigned over the kingdom of Babylon and much of the kind of the known world at that time. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has had some pretty interesting dreams uh, that Daniel has come and interpreted. Uh, there's been some, some drama as uh, Daniel's friends have been thrown in the fiery furnace for not bowing down to King Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And just this past Thursday night, we looked at Nebuchadnezzar's humbling in chapter 4, where he is brought low. Uh, there's this image of a tree, this giant tree that uh, all the nations have have found their shade under, and this tree is cut down uh, to a stump, and Nebuchadnezzar is, is humbled. Uh, there's actually going to be some, some parallels to part of our passage this morning, uh, but Nebuchadnezzar is brought low. Uh, there is then this picture of repentance and restoration. That is the title of the message this morning, and that's what we're going to be looking at here in Luke chapter 13, repentance and restoration. And we had a fantastic discussion uh, talking about humility and pride, uh, talking about how this encounter uh, that Nebuchadnezzar has with Daniel and with the Lord is really a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of our need for God's intervention in our own lives because we are needy people. We are sinful people and we are wrong oftentimes in our thinking and in our living. And we need Jesus to confront us and to change us continually. So let's go to our passage this morning and see how our Lord seeks to confront us and change us. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 21. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. 
But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather together and hear from the very mouth of Jesus, to, to hear his words, to see these interactions that he had with these people. And God, and to ask, what does this have to do with our lives here in 2020? How can we learn, how can we grow from looking at these, this passage and, and these things that happened? God, speak to us through your word. Speak to us by your spirit this morning as we gather, as we seek to hear from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at the question, why did Jesus come? This week, we're going to ask the question, what was his message? So why did he come? We saw that, some of, the, some of the reasons why last week. This week, what was his message? We're going to break this down into the four sections, just as they're divided there in the ESV. There are four sections, two warnings and two confrontations in the first section. If you're following in the ESV there, the repent or perish section, uh, verses one through five, that's the first one. The third section then is the second warning and confrontation, a woman with a disabling spirit, verses 10 through 17. Those sections are then followed by parables that support these warnings and confrontations that Jesus has here with these folks. So we're going to look at each pair together. We'll look at the warning and the confrontation along with the parable, and then we'll try to tie it all together in the end. Well, big emphasis these last couple months that we've been looking at, especially kind of starting in chapter 11, is that Jesus demands a response from us. He demands a response from everyone, and there is no neutrality. You can't sit on the fence and say, yeah, I'm not really sure what I believe about this Jesus guy. He demands an answer. He demands you to take a side. So the question is, how will we respond? How will we respond to the demands that Jesus makes? In each of these warning and confrontation sections, we see a right response and a wrong response. So let's dive into this first section. 
Again, remember our context, kind of where we've been. Chapter 12 was full of all of these warnings to be ready, to be right with God. We saw last week that Jesus himself is the source of division. Even within family units, he comes to divide father against son, mother against daughter. There's some really hard stuff in these passages. And naturally, it's not easy to be confronted with the state of our hearts. It's not easy to really look deep down inside and say, what do I really believe and where am I really at with the Lord? It's easy to justify ourselves. It's easy to try to point to our own righteousness, to the things that we have accomplished, and then point to others' unrighteousness and say, oh, well, I'm better than this person. We see that playing out here at the beginning of chapter 13, where Jesus confronts this faulty worldview. The scene here in verse 1, we, we don't know exactly the events that happened. There's no other recording of this, but this is an atrocious event that happens here. Some people come to Jesus. They tell him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. And Jesus' response shows us that these, these reporters, these ones who were coming to him, were trying to trap him. But Jesus sees right through it. Jesus sees right through their argument. And their argument was, well, we're not that bad, right? We don't do these things. And Jesus' counter-argument is, you want to bet? <laughs> he then doubles down by providing his own example of a tragic situation, the tower in Siloam. Uh, this is actually a, a place that is inside the walls of Jerusalem. You might remember the Pool of Siloam. Uh, which was in John chapter 9, where Jesus healed the, the blind man. He tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So this tower would have been located somewhere near the pool of Siloam. And it's the same question that Jesus asks in the first situation about the Galileans. Is, were they, do you think that they were worse offenders? He uses the word offenders here in verse uh, 4. In verse Two, he used the word sinners. It's the same idea, right? They're sinners and offenders. Do you think that they were worse offenders than the others, than all of the others who lived in Jerusalem? And Jesus' answer is emphatic. No. No, the Galileans who Pilate killed and the ones whom the tower fell on, they were not worse sinners than any of the other people. That's the message that Jesus is bringing to them. And it's that you're all going to die, right? Look at verse 3 and verse 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So the message is repent now. Get right with God now before the unexpected day when you might get taken out without warning. Just like the, fool, the rich fool in chapter 12 who stored up goods for himself, who told his soul to relax to eat, drink, and be merry. And God demanded his soul that very night. Well, at this point in Jesus' ministry, to claim that repentance was a foundational element of his message is no stretch. That's because it was at the heart of his message from the very beginning. In Matthew's gospel account, the very first words of John the Baptist's message and the very first words of Jesus' public ministry, it says, Matthew says of John and of Jesus that they, they began preaching, and here's the words, repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven has come near, right? Like, God is coming. Get right with him. Repent. So, if this is the first word of John the Baptist, out of John the Baptist's mouth, as he starts preaching, if it's the first word out of Jesus' mouth, we should probably figure out what they're talking about, right? So, what is repentance? Well, in the verbal form here, get a little geeky, greeky here for you for just a second. In the verbal form here, it's a combination of the Greek preposition meta, which usually means with or after, and the word nous, which means mind, okay? So keep that in mind. The word is metanoeo, okay? Meta is with, and then nous becomes noeo in, the, in that verbal form. There's actually another fancy term, another fancy kind of theological word that we talk about. We talk about the noetic effects of the fall. You may have heard that term before, the noetic effects of the fall. It means the effects that sin has on our mind and on our thinking, right? We're not just corrupt in the things that we do. We're corrupt in the way that we think. So when we, when we think about the importance of understanding that, the noetic effects of the fall, it's not just like our heart and the things that we do. It's, it's actually how our, our entire thinking, how how our worldview, everything we think about is actually corrupted by the fall. That's something that's really important to, to think about. So here, in this word, metanoeo, meta, when it prefixes with a verb, it means to change, right? Probably familiar with the word metamorphosis, right? That's actually the word, the, the transliteration of, that, of the word that's used when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. That's where we get the word metamorphosis, okay? So this word here, meta, then meta noeo, literally means to change your mind, okay? Now this is not like, uh, I was going to go to Culver's, for lunch, but then I was driving by McDonald's and the golden arches just sucked me in and I changed my mind, which would be a horrible decision, right? Evidence, total evidence of the noetic effects of the fall right there. But that's not what it's talking about. It's not just this simple, like on a whim, like I changed my mind, right? Now in the secular Greek, this word existed, but it was like a, it was just a philosophical term and it, it's pretty much just meant like in an intellectual sense, just to change the way you think about something. Now, maybe it was deeper than Culver's versus McDonald's. Maybe it was on some like serious philosophical life issues, but still it was just kind of like in the mind. But the New Testament meaning goes much deeper than that. To repent as commanded by Jesus literally is to be converted. When, when Jesus says here, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, we could translate this, be, or sorry, um, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We could translate this, unless you are converted, you will all likewise perish. That's what it means here. It's, it's talking about conversion, this total transformation. It's a sense of, of a total change in your life, not just in your thinking, but in your entire being, in your allegiances. And it's not something that can be done halfway, right? You can't just like halfway turn, halfway repent, and then you're going sideways, right? It's a total turning and going the other way. And I really want us to focus on repentance here in light of this argument that is posed to Jesus. Again, these folks are essentially trying to claim that they're okay because they're not as bad as these others who had this suffering coming to them because of their sin. That's what they're saying. They're saying these people must have had this coming to them because of the things that they have done. 
This is the mindset in our world, isn't it? Kind of this idea of karma, right? You do something bad, something bad is going to come to you. And of course, we know, like, according to the Bible, there is truth in that in terms of we reap what we sow, right? There are consequences for our sins. But we can't be the ones to point at somebody else and say, this happened to them, therefore, it must be this that they have done. That's in God's hands. And God will judge them and as he will judge us. And that's really kind of the whole point of Jesus' argument here. But this is the mindset in our world, and it's always been the mindset. This is, it was nothing new in Jesus' day, and it's nothing new in our day when people respond to events in this way. As I was thinking about this and kind of reflecting on my own upbringing, this was totally the way that I was taught to think. Uh, I was brought up in a family that, in my extended family, was, was pretty dysfunctional. Uh, there was a lot of mess, a lot of divorce, a lot of just crazy stuff going on. And even though I think we had a pretty good grasp of the brokenness, right? Like, I think we, we didn't like try to hide it. I think everybody knew that things were kind of messed up. There was a recognition of it, but it was always easier to point the finger at others, right? To like mock other people who were worse than us. And it's just like, it's so ridiculous because you're so broken and messed up, but yet it's like, oh, well, we're not as bad as those people, right? And you'll always find someone worse than you. This is why the Hitler, using Hitler as this classic example of this ultimate evil person to compare yourself to is so popular. I guarantee you that if you went out on the street today and you interviewed people right now about how bad they are, right? You, you got on this, on this like sliding scale of sin and maybe they don't even want to call it sin, but just bad things that they might do or that might happen in the world. I can probably guarantee you that nine out of 10 of them will ultimately, if they go to the extreme, they're ultimately going to bring up Hitler, right? Like, well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Like, so I'm good, right? But Jesus' message is, stop comparing yourself to Hitler. He's saying, I don't want to hear about Hitler. Does he care? Absolutely, right? Hitler was a monster. But that has nothing to do with your standing with the Lord, Hitler is not the standard that we are measured against. We are measured against a perfect and holy and sinless God. And even our best, beyond our best behavior, we are nowhere near where we must be to be able to stand in his presence. And this is why the gospel is such good news. This is why we should be so excited at Christmas time to reflect on these truths. The perfect, holy, and sinless God took on flesh and dwelt among us. He came to live the life that we could never live, to obey God perfectly, and to fulfill all of the law's demands that stood against us to display the patience and the mercy of God that we so desperately need. And that's what Jesus gets into in this next section as he tells this parable. Without Christ, we are like this fruitless tree. We ought to be cut down so that we stop using up space in the ground. But God is merciful and he is patient 
And instead of cutting us down immediately for our sin and rebellion, he shows that patience to us, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Same words Jesus used here, unless you repent, you will perish. Peter says, God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient with us. And if you're not yet a Christian, this needs to happen now for the first time. Stop comparing yourself to others. You may not be as bad as them by earthly standards, but by God's perfect standard, you are equally wicked and in need of divine rescue. So repent lest you perish in your sins. Turn to Christ Receive and rest upon him alone as he is offered to you in the gospel. And if you're already a Christian, I have good news for you. You're not off the hook here. The first line of Martin Luther's 95 theses that he nailed to the church door in Wittenberg said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's not just a one-time thing when you turn to Christ for the first time. He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this passage, puts it like this. If we have already repented in time past, let us go on repenting to the end of our lives. There will always be sins to confess and infirmities to deplore so long as we are in the body. Let us repent more deeply and humble ourselves more thoroughly every year. Let every returning birthday find us hating sin more and loving Christ more. He was a wise old saint who said, I hope to carry my repentance to the very gate of heaven. I love that. Right up until the very end, we need to be people who are living lives of repentance. But the question for us is, what motivates and fuels that type of day-to-day -day repentance? For the Christian, it's no longer Jesus' warning that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Rather, it is fueled by a delight to serve and obey the one who has set us free from sin and death by spiritually restoring our souls to a place of wholeness. That's the picture that we are given in this next encounter as Jesus' physical healing of this disabled woman points to the greater spiritual healing that we all so desperately need. Here the scene is in a synagogue on the Sabbath. There's this woman who has been disabled. She's bent over. She's been disabled for 18 years. I'm sure she was well known in the community. She was probably a type of outcast in a lot of ways. And her presence that very day in the synagogue may just, in and of itself, her being there may have been scandalous. But what Jesus does next is certainly scandalous. He is teaching. He is up front and center. He doesn't go over to her. He doesn't leave where he's at. He calls her to come to him to come up and stand right in front of all of these other people who are obviously judging her, right, as they look at her. 
And audaciously in front of all these people, he says, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he proceeds to lay his hands on her and she stands up straight for the first time in 18 years. Can you imagine? And we have to ask, why? What did she do to deserve that? I'm sure she wasn't the only crippled person in that community, right? Why does Jesus single her out and not anyone else? Well, there's no record here of any previous conversation between them. There's nobody else that came to Jesus and appealed on her behalf like we've seen at other places in Luke. Jesus just extends grace and mercy to her. And notice the contrasting responses. The woman responds appropriately. There she is in the gathered assembly where the people had gathered to worship the Lord, right? They're there to worship the God of the universe. And she gets healed and she glorifies God because of the mercy that was shown to her. Then there's the ruler of the synagogue. Notice his response in verse 14. He is indignant. How dare Jesus heal on the Sabbath? Doesn't he know? Right? He's a teacher. Doesn't he know about God's law? And notice that he doesn't even address Jesus. He says these things here to the people that are gathered. This is both cowardly and condescending. And Jesus sees right through it, and he goes straight for the jugular. Look at his reply. He says to the man, he addresses him individually, but then he says, plural, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? He indicts the whole gathering. There are two incredible pictures of God's mercy through Christ here in this account. The first one is a kind of a linguistic connection that unfortunately we don't see in the ESV um, just for readability's sake. The, the King James Version does a good job of using the same word. It uses the word loosed for all three of these words, but kind of sounds a little strange for us uh, in modern English sometimes for some of these situations. But anyways, uh, the three, there's three examples here. The first one is in verse 12, where it says, woman, you are freed from your disability. So that word freed. The second one is in verse 15, where it says that they untie their ox or their donkey. And then in verse 16, when he says, shouldn't this woman be loosed from her bond on this Sabbath day? This is all, these are all the same words in Greek. They all have the same root word. It's this, this word meaning to, to untie or to loose, to let something free. So Jesus' indictment here is that you are all willing to untie your bound animal so that it can drink water and survive, while this daughter of Abraham, your sister in the faith, has been physically and spiritually bound for 18 years, and you think that she should not be loosed from her bonds because it is the Sabbath day. That's the hypocrisy. And that's the irony here of him using that same word, right? You're willing to, to unbind this animal, and you're not willing to let me unbind this woman. 
The second picture here of God's mercy through Christ is in verse 13, where it says that Jesus laid his hands on her immediately. She was made straight. This word here for made straight, it can also be translated as restore or rebuild. This woman who was bent over, this woman who was physically and and spiritually disabled was restored. She was not only physically restored, but she was spiritually restored and rebuilt. And notice then the outcome of this healing in verse 17. This is a further confirmation of the purpose of Jesus' coming that we looked at last week. Remember, he said that I have not come to bring peace, but division. Look at what happens here in verse 17. It says, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. This here is a pretty clear picture of the type of division that Jesus creates among people. Those who are opposed to him are put to shame, while those who recognize who he is and what he came to do rejoice at the glorious things that he is doing. Jesus shows his healing power here over physical and spiritual sickness as the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan collide. The crowd has witnessed that collision right in front of their very eyes. And Jesus reinforces this by telling this twofold parable in order to describe the impact of the kingdom of God. The first image of the kingdom's impact is the mustard seed. The tiniest of seeds that eventually grows and becomes a tree that the birds of the air make their nests in. Now here is the kind of the the parallel and the, the picture of Nebuchadnezzar's tree in Daniel chapter 4. The language was there that uh, the beasts of the field all come and, and take their shelter under, under the tree of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. All the birds of the air come in and flock to it, but then his tree is cut down, and all of that shelter that, that these, these kingdoms and these nations enjoyed is, is no longer. And the point there is to show that it's God's kingdom that's superior to the kingdoms of earth, Right? Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, the shade that he provided for the nations was nothing, right? It was, it's cut down because of his pride. And God shows that he's the one that's in, the, in control. He's the one that actually provides those things for the people and the nations. But this parable here, no doubt, it, this was meant to be an encouragement to Jesus' followers. They were pretty small in number, Right? But the growth of the church would be something that would expand beyond anything they could imagine, and it would provide shelter for many who would come and make their home among the eventual tree that would grow from that tiny seed. Now, again, there's kind of a little bit of like exaggeration here. This mustard, you know, the seed, the tree that grows from this mustard seed, even though it gets, you know, relatively big compared to the size of the seed, it's still only like maybe 10 feet tall. Uh, So this isn't something that like, all of these birds can, can flock to. So it's, there's kind of some interesting exaggeration going on. And we see that really in the second image as well. And that's of the yeast or the leaven that is hidden in flour until the flour is all leavened. And I think part of the issue here, we don't really see the magnitude of, of this impact that the leaven has in our translation. We just read uh, that in verse 21, that this woman took it and hid it in three measures of flour So, you know, it's like, is that a cup? Is that a pound? What is it? Well, the actual word that's used there for measure 
is um, it's about five gallons worth. So it's 50 pounds of flour. So imagine, you know, if you could carry three five gallon buckets of flour, come and dump it up here in this massive pile and throw some yeast in it, it would be probably enough to feed about 150 people. So if you've made homemade bread before, uh, you know the patience that it takes to, to let the yeast do its work, right? And to, to ferment and to, to cause the, the dough to rise. Um, some types of bread I'd have to sit for like up to 24 hours sometimes, and sometimes it takes a long time. So again, can you imagine the scene of, of 50 pounds of flour up here and throwing some yeast in and just sitting there like, how long is this gonna take? And it would be quite a scene to see this kind of expand into this giant blob. Again, it's probably meant by Jesus here to be a bit of an exaggeration, uh, not just because of the hilarity of 50 pounds of flour fermenting into this giant blob, but because it would take a really, really long time for that to happen. And that's the point. That's how the kingdom of God expands. It's not something that happens in a short time right before our eyes. You're not going to like sit here and just watch it happen right before you. Instead, it's this long, drawn-out process that often feels invisible and seems like it's taking forever. And that's how it feels oftentimes as a Christian in this world, doesn't it? Like, is what I'm doing having any impact on the people around me or the world around me? Or maybe how it feels sometimes as a church. Are we actually doing anything to change the world around us? Like we want to, right? And we're seeking to, but is it actually having any impact? I shared a picture uh, that I have up in my office at our congregational meeting, uh, the saying that's in the, in the middle of, of a couple of pictures. There's a saying, and I have the words, decades, not years. And that came from a meeting that I had with a Pastor, a former pastor who was in, served in Oshkosh for quite a while, and I met with him for coffee one day, and I was just like, how do you connect with people here? Like, how do you connect with people in Oshkosh? How do you reach people? And he said, you have to think in terms of decades, not years. And that's the picture here, right? That's the picture of the kingdom expanding this little bit of yeast, fermenting 50 pounds of flour until it's all leavened. The long haul, being in it for the long haul. That's the picture here. Well, so let's tie this back to the previous section and ask the question that we are being confronted with here in this second pairing. The question before us is, will we be adversaries of Jesus who are shamed for our opposition to his kingdom? Or will we recognize that he is doing glorious things by setting people free from their bondage to sin and Satan? And will we get on board with his kingdom agenda? I think there is a major heart check for us here. The question is, are we okay with those kind of people being healed? Those kind of people being loosed and delivered by Jesus? The disabled woman here in this story was not the person who had it all together. But that's the point, isn't it? And that's really the beauty of the example of King Nebuchadnezzar as well, to bring it back full circle. 
It shows that on both extremes, that worldly success or lack of worldly success, whether you're a poor disabled woman or a powerful king over a vast empire, it shows that God alone is the one who is able to restore and to rebuild those who are humble and repentant. The reality is that we are all in the same boat. Without Christ, I mean, you're sitting right next to Hitler, right? You're sitting right next to Nebuchadnezzar without Christ. You're sitting right next to, you know, the, the person who's, who's done the most, you know, humanitarian acts. If they're without Christ, you know, Hitler's on one side of you and that person is right on the other side of you. We all deserve the fate of the slaughtered Galileans and those crushed by the tower. We're all as desperate for the healing touch of Jesus as the woman in that Jewish synagogue 20 centuries ago. And what an opportunity we have this morning to declare our desperation as we come to the table. As we come to the Lord's Supper, to declare that we have nothing to offer, right? We have nothing to bring. You're not coming down here and handing me a ticket and saying, I've been a good boy or a good girl the last week. Can I please have my, my cup with my, my juice and, and my wafer, right? That's not how it works, folks. Are we expected to walk with Christ and to live exemplary lives in this world? Yes. Are we expected to live lives of repentance before the face of God and before others? Absolutely. And if you're not doing those things, you might want to ask whether or not you should come to the table. But you don't have to be doing those things perfectly, right? We all fail and we all fall short and it is only by the grace of God that any of us can put one foot in front of the other each day and try to live the Christian life. This table is for, for sinful people who recognize that they have nothing to bring. They have nothing to offer from their own hands. It's for those who recognize that Christ alone is, is their hope in life and in death, right? Who have said, I, I repent of my sins. I've been restored by Christ, and I'm seeking that repentance and restoration on a daily basis. So if you're a Christian, if you're in good standing in a gospel-preaching church, you're welcome to come. You're welcome to, to take the elements. Uh, we will come and take uh, take the elements. We'll return to our seat where we will all partake together. There is uh, red wine in some of the cups. And again, the, the cups are stacked together. So there's, there's wine or juice. There's red wine, white grape juice. Uh, the cup under, underneath has the wafer in it. So just grab one stack and we'll take the elements. We'll return to our seats where we will all partake together. Before we come forward, I'd like to pray for the kids who are not taking communion. Father, we thank you for the children among us. God, even as we witnessed in Isla's baptism, Lord, the, the baptism, the, the bringing these children into the covenant community is with a, with a longing that one day they will profess Christ and that they will come to the table upon their own profession of faith because they have repented of their sins, they have been restored, and they have trusted Christ by faith alone. I pray for those among us who are not there yet, Lord, that you would work in their hearts. God, that you would change their hearts and their minds, that they would trust in you. God, thank you for the families that are seeking to bring these children up in the admonition of the Lord. We ask that you would strengthen the parents 
to do that work that you have called them to do. And for the rest of us, may we be those who come alongside these families to, who help, who encourage, who seek um, to, to help these young ones to grow in their faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When you are ready, uh, you can come forward, take the elements, again, return to your seats, and we will all partake together. And the, the wafers are gluten-free. <laughs>